Welcome to Securing America with me, Frank Afton, the program that's a kind of owner's manual for protecting the country we love against all enemies, foreign and domestic, to the glory of God and his kingdom. Well, as Thomas Paine put it, these are the times that try men's souls. And we're going to be talking with one of our most admired colleagues about what is being done in our name as American citizens to a country that we love, and that would be the state of Israel, by an administration that has now become, I believe, so deeply enthralled with Iran, with communist China, with assorted others who are, well, there's no getting around it, enemies of our country, that it has decided not simply to, well, refrain from helping as fully as we should, a vital ally in desperate need, but actually to work assiduously to undermine that ally, to endanger it, and perhaps actually to threaten its very existence. We are going to be talking about a very important bill of particulars that has been compiled making this case by one of our Center for Security Policy's senior fellows, Carolyn Glick. We hope in the course of the week to have a chance to visit with her personally, but we wanted to take stock of this indictment that she has laid out at jns.org. It would be the Jewish News Syndicate.org with another of our very deeply admired friends and colleagues, um, the director of the Mideast programs at the Center for Security Policy, Dr. David Wormser, no stranger to this program, in fact, a very important contributor to it. We're going to ask him to go through quickly this, um, well, bill of particulars, if you will, that Carolyn has compiled. Um, Take stock, see if it has merit, and if so, assess the implications for not just Israel, but for America, of a policy that the Biden administration, like the Obama administrations before it, is pursuing with, I believe, ruthless effect. Dr. Wormser, it is always good to have you with us, sir. Thank you. You've worked at the highest levels of the United States government. You know Middle East policy uh, intimately, historically, as well as you've observed it close at hand in the present moment. Um, just to level set, is it fair, do you think, to say, as I have just now, the Biden administration is treating our friend Israel worse than our enemies, notably Iran, China, even Hamas and Hezbollah? Yeah, I think it's correct. I think the way things are beginning to shake out now, as you have the uh, war go on into its fifth month, what is uh, the Gaza war, what is becoming quite apparent is that strategically, tactically, the United States throws some ammunition and money at Israel, but strategically, it is trying to leverage Hamas and the war in a way that will gravely wound uh, perhaps permanently cripple Israel in the long run. And well, that's the best case in a way, it seems. If, yeah. If it just harms Israel and Israel, you know, is struggling to muddle through, that's bad enough, obviously. But is it possible that this could pose truly an existential threat to the Jewish state itself? Well, it certainly can. I mean, uh, for example, let's go back to October 7th. Uh, Hamas invaded from Gaza which is a small territory with a very limited population. And it penetrated into Israel because it caught them off guard on a holiday. It penetrated into Israel five, 10 miles. Uh, if you superimpose that five, 10 miles on the West Bank, and they there would have been a Palestinian state. And uh, there's no doubt that if it had been an actual independent Palestinian state, it would have been run by Hamas the Israeli army is the instrument of survival, ironically, for the Palestinian Authority, 
without it, it falls to Hamas immediately. Uh, if Hamas had run the West Bank on October 7th, Israel would have been overrun. And that's even without Hezbollah joining. So uh, uh, about 80 to 90 percent of Israel's population would have faced this massacre, not a very small percentage that lives around the Gaza envelope. So you can go no further than that. Yeah. And again, this is partly a function of the geography of Israel. Um, at its narrowest point, it's only about 10 miles wide, as I recall. And Less, yeah. If it, were, if it were to be, you know, severed, as well as uh, the different parts of it uh, attacked with anything remotely like the kind of uh, viciousness. And by the way, were that to happen, David, um, even setting aside uh, the complicity of the Palestinian Authority in what happened on the 7th of October, you you have weapons in the hands of the so-called security forces of the Palestinian Authority that would be in the hands of Hamas and presumably other arms from Iran as well that would have made the kind of uh, mayhem that we saw, again, against a relatively small population, into truly a, a kind of genocide. Don't you and think? training. The United States, uh, part of its training. concept was to build a, an effective Palestinian authority. So it trained them. So these, these are American trained soldiers. You know, the thing is, it's also a uh, before an attack. It's a weakening of Israel. Because, for example... Uh, all of Israel's industries uh, would be under the threat of small arms fire, if not these anti-tank missiles. So, very, so investment would go down. Israel's airport would be constantly under threat. It is within very, it's it's within sight uh, of of almost the entire West Bank uh, area in, the, in that area, and it can be shut down extremely easy with a with an RPG, even a. Uh, an anti-tank missile, a shoulder-held anti-tank missile. It can be shut down and a plane shot down. So Israel would start would start shriveling up, even without a war. And then another October 7th-like attack would kill it. So a Palestinian state at this point. The other thing is, even if one imagines there's a path to a Palestinian state, to do it now, takes October 7th, which is now a monument to depravity, a monument to evil, because what they did on October 7th defies human decency on every possible level. But it turns October 7th into, the, into their Bastille Day, into their shot heard around the world at the bridge at Lexington Concord. It, it would be transforming that into the moment of independence of the Palestinians and transforming this awful depraved event into a glorious foundation of Palestinian statehood, which whitewashes the depravity and also legitimizes and validates the depravity. Yes. Um, so and, and, and David, on this point, I, I think it must be said that depravity uh, beyond comprehension for most of us in the civilized Judeo-Christian world is actually prescribed as part of Sharia, the doctrine of jihad that animates the people, not all Muslims, needless to say, thank God, but uh, the authorities of the faith and those they consider to be most faithful adherents. And the, the thing that is just beyond comprehension is rewarding that to say nothing of uh, signaling that it is actually worthy of being rewarded is an abomination in its own right that I think makes uh, what the Biden administration is doing all the more reprehensible. We're gonna talk more about the particulars of this with David Wormser on the other side of a short break. Stay with us. This is Frank Afting with the Secure Freedom Minute. The folks who lost Afghanistan are working to do the same to Israel with even more dire consequences. 
In this case, Team Biden is actively putting the survival of the Jewish state at risk while enriching and emboldening her mortal enemies and ours, namely the Sharia supremacist Iranian regime, its myriad terrorist proxies, and their ultimate sponsor, Communist China. My colleague Carolyn Glick has brilliantly exposed the extent of this wrecking operation in a column at JNS.org. She describes 11 different ways in which the American people's support for Israel is being betrayed by Biden and company, including by Washington's efforts to topple the elected government of Benjamin Netanyahu. So much for Biden's purported commitment to democracy. Congress must reject Afghanistan 2.0 and approve without further delay the weapons Israel urgently requires to win the war she is waging for us as well. This is Frank Afney. We're back. Dr. David Wormser, my colleague at the Center for Security Policy, is in the House, I'm very pleased to say. And we're going to be talking about some of the charges that our colleague, the wonderful um, well, really extraordinary, Carolyn Glick has leveled against the Biden administration. And I wanted to start with what the Biden team is doing, David, uh, in the person not just of Tony Blinken, who has been much in evidence in Israel, uh, the Secretary of State, but also William Burns, a man I believe you worked with extensively in your time in government at the State Department and elsewhere, now the director of the Central Intelligence Agency. I'm not quite clear why an intelligence agency official would be in this mix, but uh, that's the case. What's wrong with this approach that they're taking to a ceasefire? Well, the most important one is that it denies Israel victory, and it's an, a critical victory to establish, uh, to erase the weakness that Israel suffered on October 7th, show the region that Israel is strong and will come back, and tee Israel up for a long-term survival in the region. So the ceasefire now allows Hamas to survive in Gaza, Hamas to survive as a force, operationally to maintain a base, allow Israel to strike at Israel. The last act in the last minute before ceasefire will be missiles onto Israel from Hamas to show that they can. Uh, a base to attack Israeli communities that have suffered uh, so horribly under their first attack on October 7th, a place to hold the hostages, which will then not be released. Uh, so politically, strategically, tactically, it would be a loss for Israel. Yeah, a, a decisive, decisive defeat. Yeah. Um, David, uh, you suggest that the Israeli hostages might not be released. There's a There's a pretty powerful incentive to the release of at least many of them, and that is the emptying out of Israeli jails of people with the blood of Israelis on their hands. Uh, this is part of the deal that the Biden administration is trying to broker, is it not? Yes, it is. And I think the administration is also talking about reintegrating parts of Hamas into the Palestinian Authority, uh, bringing out Marwan Barghouti. Who the, has the, the, the political arm. Yeah, Probably, the political yeah. arm, and then uh, bring out Marwan Barghouti as blood of many dozens of Israelis on his hands and putting him up as some sort of an imaginary moderate. Uh, it, it, they've learned nothing. From we, we've seen stuff. this movie before. They've tried it in the past, have they not? Yeah, and it's, uh, this is uh, October 7th all over again. Yeah, a formula uh, for it. And David, uh, another of Carolyn's charges is the use that the administration is allowing to be made of humanitarian aid by Hamas, since the administration is insisting in, again, furtherance of Hamas's agenda that Palestinians in Gaza not be allowed to flee the fighting. They're being essentially kept there as human shields by our administration as well. Would that be correct? Yeah, that's correct. I think it's a two-level thing, quickly. Uh, one is the fact that the humanitarian aid includes fuel and things that Hamas uses to maintain its war machine uh, and keeps it moving strategically and therefore prolongs the war, combined with the fact that the United States has imposed on Israel much more limited tactics that slow down the war. So Israel's progress has slowed down. 
the life, uh, the breath, the resilience of Hamas is aided by the humanitarian. And then finally, a strange Because they're getting the bulk of it, as I understand it, 60% yeah. or so? 60, 70% goes to Hamas, not to the Palestinians. Uh, and then finally, uh, the uh, humanitarian issue, the, uh, the, we're essentially becoming the East Berlin Wall during the Cold War for the Palestinians. We're locking them in. Many Palestinians want to leave. Many Palestinians long ago wanted to leave, but we're making it so that they're not allowed to. We are not, we're literally enforcing a no immigration policy on the Palestinian Authority, on, on, the, on Gaza. And uh, obviously that's, uh, that's imprisoned. In the service of Hamas, let's be clear. Well, so David, Hamas and in the service of Hamas and the ceasefire we're trying to do, will keep Hamas over. Yeah, exactly. Um, David, you mentioned the weapons supply. Um, this is something that is pointed to by the administration as evidence that it is doing what Joe Biden said we would do, which is to stand shoulder to shoulder with Israel, come what may. How is that weapon supply actually being um, meted out? And is it being used as leverage, A, but B, is it also a cover? for the other sorts of things you're talking about here. It's being used heavily as a lever. Lever Every time the Israeli government runs into public opposition, and there's great public opposition to how the war is conducted, they want to win, and they want to win decisively and fast. They meaning the Israeli people? The Israeli people. And the, the government keeps saying, look, we're trying. But we have to do X. We have to do Y, because the Americans are demanding it. Otherwise, they'll cut off our our ammunition. Now, what's a little bit un, not understood is there was a huge stockpile of ammunition in the Negev that was there for use by Israel in an emergency, precisely for this circumstance, that we had emptied out in the year or two before this war. It was a joint American-Israeli stockpile uh, with sufficient equipment in it. And the Israelis uh, watched as we emptied it out entirely on the eve of the war over the last year. So the Israelis counted strategically, prepared for that stockpile's existence that didn't. So we're really filling what was supposed to have been there anyway. But we're choking Israel, we're using it as leverage. There are those of us who are cynical about why it was emptied out in the first place, I have to say, David, as well as, by the way, the similar stocks in South Korea, which may yes. also serve a similar purpose if, God forbid, Xi Jinping decides to light that place up, as he Which did, I believe. White light. Uh, Israel, yeah. David, uh, let me ask you quickly about Palestinian statehood. The Biden administration has uh, what the French would call an idée fixe, that this is the inevitable solution. Um, as you said, there are going to be uh, some personnel changes maybe made in the lineup. But what is the underlying problem that makes that a non-starter, especially for the people of Israel? Well, uh, I mean, apart from the fact that it would reward the war that uh, Hamas started, um, they, they succeeded where nobody has succeeded before, is force an Israeli retreat, territorial loss. The only wars that Israel has ever had that have truly bought some peace and were seen by as victories to Israel and defeats by the Arab side have been those where Israel acquired territory, 67 and 48. Um, so at, at the end of the day, you're rewarding the Palestinian, uh, the most extreme Palestinian factions and outlook that only struggle where armed resistance and killing Jews will get you, get you what you want. Uh, but the second thing is territory. Which, again, is part of their yes. Sharia doctrine as well. The, the second thing is, regardless of how you reform the Palestinian Authority, and this is where our, you know, Frank, you and I fought the Cold War. Um, you, obviously, much more senior than me. But we differentiated between the communist government and the people who we were trying to liberate in, in, in Eastern Europe. And Unfortunately, we're facing more of a World War II circumstance here where the population is an, an inimical to Israel, want them dead. And as a result, it doesn't matter really what government you put on top of this Palestinian authority. Its sole purpose, its soul, its DNA will be to spend every minute using whatever territory and governance and power and money it gets 
to kill Israelis and destroy the state of Israel. Right. To get the rest it's of it by from nature. the river to and the sea. And then also, its very existence annuls the legitimacy of the Jewish people to that land by saying they're the legitimate claimants to the land, but oh, we'll force them in a box. It, it, on every level, the point of a Palestinian state now is coming into focus as a, as a vanguard to destroy Israel. David, we have to leave it at that. There is more in Carolyn Glick's um, Bill of Particulars, as I call it. We'll have you back and hopefully her to discuss all of it further. But folks, if this is not what you want your government to be doing to our friends in Israel, we need your voice to be heard with your members of Congress now because they're considering legislation that would provide assistance to Israel that must be done as well. David, God bless you. Come back to us with more soon. We'll be right back with Reggie Littlejohn. Stay tuned. Night after night in cities across the country, black garbed assailants clash with police in the streets, smash windows and throw Molotov cocktails in an effort to destroy police stations, federal courthouses and local businesses, all in the name of anti-fascism. Most Americans are now sadly all too aware of the movement known as Antifa. But where did they come from? What do they want? And how do we stop their campaign of violent mayhem? The Center for Security Policy Press is proud to present Unmasking Antifa, Five Perspectives on a Growing Threat. This new book looks at the history, ideology, organization, finances, and strategy of Antifa and provides an in-depth analysis for law enforcement officers, policymakers, and the general public. From street fighting tactics of the Black Bloc to fundraising by prominent left-wing foundations, Unmasking Antifa is the go-to guide to understand this elusive and dangerous threat. Get your copy of Unmasking Antifa, Five Perspectives on a Growing Threat at Amazon.com. back. And what a pleasure to say we are joined by Reggie Littlejohn, one of my all-time favorite people, a close colleague and much admired resource for not only this program, but for much of the work we do with our Committee on the Present Danger China, of which she's an important member, with our Sovereignty Coalition, of which she is a uh, co-chairman with me, as well as the indispensable Stop Vaccine Passports Task Force of our coalition, the, uh, the committee. It is incredibly important in terms of particularly of um, what Reggie's leadership has produced in terms of a body of webinars that um, I just commend to all of you at stopvaxpassports.org. When she's not doing all of that, she actually has a day job, and that is as the president and founder of a marvelous organization, Women's Rights Without Frontiers, and that too deserves your active interest and support. Reggie, it's good to have you back. Welcome once again to Securing America. Thank you so much, Frank. It's a pleasure to be back. Thank you. We had a wonderful uh, ensemble performance uh, Monday of this week in a press conference that um, the inimitable Congressman Chris Smith of New Jersey convened. Uh, it was also attended by another important member of the United States House of Representatives. That would be Congressman Brad Wenstrup, who is the chairman of the Oversight Committee's Select Subcommittee, looking into the origins and other aspects of the COVID, well, biological warfare attack, let's call a spade a spade. But what we were talking about more broadly was not only what happened to us during the pandemic unleashed by that attack and the response to it. But the entity that did so much to compound the damage that was done to this nation and much of the rest of the world, namely the World Health Organization, and the prospect that in its infinite wisdom, the Biden administration, the European Union, the World Economic Forum, Bill Gates, Big Pharma, 
on and on, see fit to try to entrust with unprecedented supranational authority, what they call global governance powers. Reggie, what is wrong with this picture? <laughs> oh my goodness, Frank, it's, it's hard to even know where to begin, but I guess I'll begin where you left off, which is that there was a, a hearing, um, gosh, in December, where uh, several administrative officials, none of our folks, only members of the Biden administration were asked to testify about reforming the World Health Organization. And one of the themes that came up was that the World Health Organization needs more money, more power in order to be able to hold China accountable. And my response to that, and something that I said in the press conference on Monday is, in what world do we think that the same organization that is basically kowtowing to the Chinese Communist Party during the COVID-19 pandemic, that was, was serving as a mouthpiece for them uh, in all their lies about the origins of, 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 of the coronavirus, about them saying there's no human-to-human -human transmission, about them saying that it's under control, and so there doesn't need to be any kind of a um, you know, a restriction in travel to and from China. Meanwhile, they were restricting travel within China uh, to, 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 to uh, try to contain the virus. Okay, the World Health Organization was the mouthpiece for that. The virus spread all over the world. In my opinion, this was deliberate by the Chinese Communist Party. Okay, why were they? Why were they? Why were they? Why were they restricting travel within their own country and promoting it to the rest of the world? I believe that this is part of their unrestricted warfare against the world. I believe it was a biological warfare attack by the Chinese Communist Party, um, launched against the rest of the world to weaken the rest of the world so that they could bring themselves up. And the World Health Organization did nothing to stop it. They, in fact, let them do it, and they, in fact, promoted their lies. So why on earth would we want to give them any more money, any more power, thinking they're going to use it to hold the Chinese Communist Party accountable? And, and let me just add to that list, Reggie, one other really important data point. The arrangements that are now under negotiation, mostly you know, behind closed doors, two different agreements, um, amendments to the international health regulations that exist currently, and a new document, uh, they sometimes call it a treaty when they slip up, a pandemic accord or framework agreement. But the guy who will be empowered by those negotiating instruments to make the World Health Organization powerful uh, give it the authority to declare public health emergencies of international concern and impose by diktat what must be done in response to whatever they consider to be such an emergency is a man who was plucked from the obscurity of a Marxist Ethiopian government to run the World Health Organization. Uh, a guy with a PhD, but not a medical doctor by the name of Tedros Ghebreyesus. You put all this together, Reggie, and this is, frankly, malfeasance in the extreme on the part of our government and uh, uh, these others as well, these interested parties, is it not? If the World Health Organization gets what it's asking for through these amendments to the international health regulations and the pandemic treaty, it will make Tedros Ghebreyesus, the most powerful man in the history of the world in terms of political power, secular power, because he, what, what these documents say, especially the uh, amendments to the health, um, the uh, international health regulations, what they say is that he, with all this power is concentrated in the director general, will have um, the ability not only to announce public health emergencies of international concerns, Ackerman, P-H-E-I-C, called fake. You know, I think that that's a good, a good way of pronouncing, appropriately pronounced fake, okay? But he will be able to, to uh, order lockdowns, quarantines, mass mandates, vaccine mandates for anything that is a potential concern. And it doesn't have to be international concern. It can be local concern. So it can be 
basically, and, and it doesn't even have to be a health emergency, or he can name anything he wants as a health emergency. He can name, you know, a virus, a health emergency. He can name gun violence and a public health emergency and use that as a pretext for, for taking away our Second Amendment rights. He can use um, climate change as an emergency. And that and climate change is in the new pandemic, the most recent draft of um, the pandemic treaty. He can use anything he wants. Yeah. And in his remarks at Davos, he explicitly said that that is one of the things he will be working on is a pl- public health emergency, climate change. And, and Reggie, as you were saying about confiscating our guns, uh, what this would enable him to do and have the Biden administration enforce as a matter of treaty obligation, they would argue, is uh, the kind of well, again, malfeasance that we saw the WHO engage in during the previous pandemic. I mean, we've seen this movie and it does not end well, does it? No, it does not. So, you know, the problem, Frank, is people will say, well, this is unconstitutional. They can't do this. And and that's true. That It's true that it's unconstitutional. It's not true that they can't do it. Okay. So constitutionally, um, you can you can argue, and I think correctly, that healthcare is not one of the enumerated powers that has been delegated to the federal government, and therefore it's not theirs to give away. And I believe that that is a, a cogent constitutional argument. Does that mean that they won't do it? Absolutely not. These people don't care. They're lawless. You know, in the Bible it says that in the end times lawlessness will abound. Okay, well we're seeing lawlessness abounding here. They don't care what the law is. They will do whatever they think that they can get away with. And that and and that's why we have to put up a resistance. And, you know, Reggie, each and every one of these administration officials, some of whom, as you say, testified before Congressman Bradstrup's uh, select subcommittee, swore an oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. And here they are. Actively engaged in trying to subvert it, and I, I would argue, ultimately to destroy it. Uh, this is unconscionable, and you're right. We're going to talk more uh, in a moment about uh, resistance, but just to stay with a couple of key points here, you have coined the phrase. I'm not sure it was altogether yours, but you certainly have <laughs> helped popularize the phrase "digital gulag." Talk about how the World Health Organization would create and then wield that kind of instrument against not just Americans, but everybody on the planet. If the World Health Organization gets what it's asking for or, or the, through these amendments and the pandemic treaty, there, there will be put into place a biotech surveillance state from which there will be no escape once it is implemented. And the reason that there will be no escape is because they have set up a system very similar to the China social credit system where people will be tracked and censored and then and and then punished through um, you know through either getting their digital IDs turned off or or um, not being able to pay for things through central banks digital currencies so this digital gulag the infrastructure of it is being set up through the World Health Organization um, through digital IDs which used to be called vaccine passports, except we had the vaccine passports task force, I believe made that nomenclature uh, radioactive. So I, I think we can take credit for the fact that they basically found it necessary to change the word. Okay. Now they call it a digital ID, but it's being rolled out. Same, by, same deal. It's the same thing. And it's being rolled out by the world health organization um, together with the European union. They're rolling it out uh, as we speak worldwide. And, and if you look on the world health organization, excuse me, um, Reggie, let me ask you to hold just a second because we have to take a short break. We'll be right back with more with Reggie Littlejohn about how this digital gulag is actually afoot and what it'll mean for you right after this.
This is Frank Afting with the Secure Freedom Minute. The folks who lost Afghanistan are working to do the same to Israel with even more dire consequences. In this case, Team Biden is actively putting the survival of the Jewish state at risk while enriching and emboldening her mortal enemies and ours, namely the Sharia supremacist Iranian regime, its myriad terrorist proxies, and their ultimate sponsor, Communist China. My colleague Carolyn Glick has brilliantly exposed the extent of this wrecking operation in a column at JNS.org. She describes 11 different ways in which the American people's support for Israel is being betrayed by Biden and company, including by Washington's efforts to topple the elected government of Benjamin Netanyahu. So much for Biden's purported commitment to democracy. Congress must reject Afghanistan 2.0 and approve without further delay the weapons Israel urgently requires to win the war she is waging for us as well. This is Frank Afney. Welcome back. Reggie Littlejohn is in the house. Praise God. She is the president of Women's Rights Without Frontiers and one of our national leaders in opposition to the assault on our sovereignty being engineered by the Biden administration and its friends, notably the Chinese Communist Party, to crush the sovereignty of our nation and, well, frankly, the constitutional republic that... uh, is supposed to guarantee our freedoms. Reggie, you were making a point about how this digital gulag could operate, and I just wanted to to say to any skeptics in our audience that something as egregious as a means of tracking your every move and your every transaction and your every you know thought for that matter could possibly happen in America. And yet we've had some experience with these uh, so-called vaccine passports or digital health cards, even here, to say nothing of what's happened elsewhere. But I particularly want you to talk about the so-called social credit system. You know, there's a lot of talk about the China model being applied here. What is the social credit system and how would it relate to what we've just been discussing? The social credit system in China um, is, is a system by which in the Chinese Communist Party, they track everything about a person. They, they, they track everything about, they know they have facial recognition, so they know exactly what you look like. They have real-time geolocation, so they know where you are. They know where you work. They know where you live. Um, they, it, it tracks your credit card expenditure, so they know everything that you've bought. Um, it tracks your social media posts, so they know everything you've said on social media. Um, it tracks your internet search history. So if you search for things they don't like, for example, if you tr- search for the terms Tiananmen Square Massacre, you can get dinged. Um, it, it, they, they track your... Um, dinged means your social credit score would be diminished. And that's that's not just you know, right. a blot on your record. That right. has real world consequences, does it well, not, I mean, in China? It, it goes beyond being... okay. If you, if you are a real dissident and, and you're constantly searching for things that you're not supposed to search for on, on, on uh, the internet, you can get more than dinged, or maybe dinged means having the internet police at your door to drag you away. That's what happens to people in China. That's a Chinese um, ding. That's no. a Chinese ding, right? A ding with Chinese characteristics, I guess, is what <laughs> Xi would say. Yeah. Right, that's right. And when you're dragged away, that, that may be the end of you, uh, or certainly functionally the end of you. It may afflict your family and others uh, you know, you love. And But Reggie, I guess my basic point is this, that we're not making this up, folks. That's what the World Health Organization is putting into place in terms of this infrastructure. And, and Reggie, to your point about... Will we be subjected to this if we go along with these kinds of uh, agreements that are now being cooked up? 
So you have to put what the World Health Organization is doing together with the uh, World Economic Forum and what they say about the digital IDs. And they work together. I mean, these guys are in, in cahoots with each Hand other. Hand in glove. Yeah. Right. So, so the World um, Health Organization is saying, oh, disease X could be 20 times more lethal than COVID-19. I want to make it clear. There's no such thing as disease X. Disease X, which they were talking about the World Economic Forum, which I think that they were you know, trying to scare everybody with disease X, um, is just a hypothetical disease. And they're, and they're hypothesizing, what if we had a disease where 20 times more people would die? Okay, what, what are we going to do? I'll tell you what they want to do. Okay, They want to surveil everyone through the One, One Health surveil all the people, all the animals, all the plants, the environment. It's an excuse for surveillance because in case disease X emerges, we need to know exactly when and where it emerges. They want to censor disinformation. Like if somebody says, well, you know what? Disease X um, can be cured by this cheap drug. You know, they're going to censor that. That's misinformation or disinformation. Um, and, and, and then they're, and they're, and they're using this, um, this tracking system that they want to put up the, the the digital ID. They're using disease X as a pretext that everybody needs to be surveilled because we need to keep everybody safe. We need, we need to know who's sick immediately so we can stop this pandemic and we need to uh, know who's vaccinated. So who's safe and who can move around, who cannot. Okay. So that's the pretext. And what they're going to do is they're going to apply all the functionality that's in the digital ID chart, of the World Economic Forum. And what that and what their chart says is that these digital IDs are going to be used to, to either allow or disallow everyone to participate in basically every aspect of society, including will you, you know, your digital, you're gonna, you're gonna depend on a digital ID and being in good standing with the, the powers that be to access healthcare, to pay your taxes, to vote, to travel, to have a bank account, to make online purchases, to um, you know, to search the to internet. use your money to, with right. the central bank digital currency component melded right. into this, right? So then, and then we can weave this next part of it in. So we've got we've we've woven together now the WHO with the um, World Economic Forum. Now let's get in, you know, Augustine Carstens, who I, I believe he's the head of the World Bank. One of, it, 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 I think he's. I think he's an IMF guy, if I'm not mistaken. Okay, International Monetary, Monetary Fund. Fund. Okay, so yeah. so he said the quiet part out loud, which was he said, "What's the difference between a central bank digital currency and cash?" And what he basically said is, with cash, we don't know who spent it, where they spent it. With, with a central bank digital currency, um, we know who spent it, where they spent it, how much they spent. And we and we can monitor that, and and it's also programmable, so we can stop people we can stop people from spending money if we don't want them to, or make them be able to spend it only under certain circumstances, and that's what they're after with this. Or simply take it away from them altogether. That's Again, right. if your social credit score is too low, right. uh, Reggie, th this is so chilling, and uh, you know the thing that is so stunning to me our our press conference. Um, was, to the best of my knowledge, the third event on Capitol Hill in the space of the past year. One other press conference, uh, Ralph Norman from South Carolina put it together. That's right. Uh, and uh, one hearing by Brad Wetstrup, the one we've talked about. That's it in terms of congressional oversight of any of this. It's, it's just gobsmacking that the administration mostly stealthily frankly is moving this ball inexorably forward and will all other things being equal lock us into it come the end of may we have to take right. a short break reggie when we come back we're going to talk about what we can and must do to prevent that stay poor stay tuned for more with reggie little john right after this Reggie Littlejohn is with us from the Women's Rights Without Frontier and Sovereignty Coalition and so much more. Reggie, we were talking about 
the horribles that are associated with this idea of creating a new supranational mechanism, a global governance instrument in the World Health Organization. And what you touched on quickly, and I don't want to, we don't have time to dwell on it, but just something else that is such a fundamental affront to our rights is the idea that the WHO will be able to exercise censorship control over what we say, uh, what we're thinking and conveying and uh, who we're saying it to and all the rest. Talk us through that a little bit, please. All right. So in the pandemic treaty, what they what the nations are agreeing to is that they shall, and the word shall appears in the pandemic tree over 170 times. This is absolutely a legally binding document. They shall manage infodemics, meaning an infodemic is just too much information, right? So it could be true information, but if there's too much of it, then then, that. then, then our government is, is agreeing to shut it down. And then also to combat, which is a military turn, combat misinformation and disinformation as the WHO defines it. So just think about it in the beginning of the pandemic, saying that there was human to human transmission against what the WHO was saying would be considered misinformation or disinformation. And the government would be agreeing that it shall combat that. So basically what they're doing is they're, they're shutting down any other voice other than the WHO. Okay. So I know that astute people in our audience are probably saying, well, this is obviously so unconstitutional that the United States Senate under our constitution, which has the authority to advise and consent to treaties, will take care of it. That It won't pass muster with the Senate. It has to receive a two-thirds vote of the Senate, no less. Why is there no comfort to be found in that quarter? Okay. The, the, the Ron Johnson, about what was it, six months ago at this point, ran an amendment just to say anything that's passed by the WHO, any WHO treaty can only take effect in the United States with the advice and consent of the Senate. And the Senate itself voted it down. And that vote went straight down party lines. More than half of the senators said that they were not going to, that they did not want to consider it. So, you know, you can't just rest on the idea of, oh, don't worry about it. The Senate will protect us. It will not protect us unless we rise up and demand that it protect us. Right. And the courts similarly uh, may get around to finding it unconstitutional, but not until a lot of this digital gulag and other stuff has been put into place. Now, Reggie, one of the things that you made a point of uh, in some of your presentations is that, and I think you mentioned it earlier in this program, as a matter of fact, um, the federal government does not actually have the power to govern our public health. Uh, they've got agencies and entities of various kinds that uh, do it all the time, of course, but it's not among, as you said, the enumerated powers under our constitution. What are the implications of this World Health Organization gambit for states' rights and the idea that this administration is going to give away the powers that actually are reserved to the states instead? Well, see, this is the thing, Frank, the Constitution, under the Constitution, they can't do that. But number one, it could take years for it to get to the Supreme Court. And meanwhile, they've done untold damage in the interim. And number two, we don't know whether the Supreme Court will have the spine to stand up to the federal government and tell them that they can't do this. OK, so the Constitution is it will not defend us. It is a tool that we can use to defend ourselves. And one of the best ways that we can defend ourselves is with states' rights. And there are a number of states' rights initiatives that people can join and just say, you know what, in, in our state, we're, we're not going to implement this WHO uh, gambit. And, and that, is, that is one main way of fighting back. And we're, we also have at our sovereigntycoalition.org site um, a vehicle for engaging your federal representatives as well. And talk people through quickly, Reggie, if you would, um, what's on offer there and why it is so important that people, as you say, actively resist by lending their names uh, and putting their members of Congress on notice that they do not want any part of this World Health Organization gambit. On the Sovereignty Coalition website, there is a petition. Please sign the petition and share it. 
if you sign that petition, it will automatically go to your federal representatives and we can make it, we can arrange it. So it will also go to people's states representatives. That's something we can do. Um, and this is incredibly important right now because as people might know, the house of representatives voted to defund the world health organization, but that has not passed all the way through the Senate and it's still under consideration. And the only way that we're going to make that, you know, bring that across the finish line is if people take action urgently now to keep that alive because so, so that our representatives know this is important to their constituents, that their uh, reelection might depend on it. And that's when they're going to take action on it. Yeah. Now let's, let's just go over that slowly because this is a critically important point, folks. You know, much of what we're talking about uh, is obviously very, very, um, well, dangerous. There is some good news, and that is that thanks to uh, uh, Congressman Mario Diaz-Balart, the chairman of the relevant subcommittee of the Appropriations Committee overseeing foreign operations funding, and a handful of others, I want to salute again, Ralph Norman and uh, John Malinar. These are these are members of Congress who stood up and they got the approval of the full House of Representatives to zero out the funding for the World Health Organization and to stipulate that nothing was going to go forward in terms of these agreements unless the Senate did, in fact, advise and consent to it. No further funding, in other words. Reggie, this is huge, and we do need people to go to SovereigntyCoalition.org to weigh in and to encourage your members of Congress to hold the line on this. And, and finally, Reggie, I know you've made the powerful argument in our press conference on Monday that we need to delay further action on these agreements. In 20 seconds, give us why that's so. The, both the... Um, the the uh, amendments to the international health regulations and the new pandemic treaty are going to be coming up for a vote on in at the end of may of this year and i believe that they need to be delayed because the um the ihr amendments they were supposed to have been submitted in full to the world health assembly four months in advance january 27th and they, and they didn't do it and reggie that's grounds as far as i'm concerned for stopping this thing in its tracks god bless you my dear keep up the great work at women's rights without frontiers come back to us soon as i hope will the rest of you and that until then you will go forth and multiply <laughs>